0: There are a couple of main points that, in my opinion, have changed the value of the pork bellies. Uh, one of them has to do with uh, with uh, demand for the international markets. So you have uh, markets like uh, South Korea or Japan that uh, demand high-quality bellies for, for the consumption, for the different ways that they consume belly or, over there. Uh, and they pay high prices or high quality bellies, so that brings up the demand for the for the high quality end uh, of the product. But then we have also the the domestic consumption. I'm talking uh, about North America because the case of the bellies is not the same all around the world, but in North America specifically is where these prices have changed so much. And when I talk to people, I always uh, I always ask, when was the last time that you ate pork chops? when was the last time that you had bacon in in some food preparation that you were having, even as a as a second ingredient, uh, bacon is everywhere, every day. Uh, so, uh, but and then other other pork cuts are maybe not as common. So, the combination of the export markets plus the uh, the the popularity of bacon, I think, have have helped increase the price of the pork belly.
1: A whole new era of communication in the Canadian swine industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the Canadian and global swine industry right in your pocket. And what's best, you can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We wanna thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Swine Veterinary Partners comprises four well-established clinics across Canada. Precision Veterinary Services, Premier SHP, Demeter Ontario, and Demeter Quebec. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Our nutrition group includes four companies Nutrition Athena, Shakespeare Mill, Farmhouse, and Nutrition Partners, which serve swine producers all across Canada. Welcome to the Swinet Podcast Show Canada a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the Canadian and global swine industry. Working with nature and not against it, piglets fed AX3 see significant and improved feed efficiency. Producers know the reality of needing to reduce antibiotic and zinc use. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible novel protein that promotes improved in-barn performance, piglet health, and minimizes the need for zinc in the diet. For more information, visit www.Protecta.com. That's www.Protecta.com. Well, hello
2: everyone. Welcome to Swine It Canada. My name is John Patience and I'll be the host for today's podcast. And I'm really happy to have with us a special guest today, Dr. Manuel Juarez, who's with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lacombe, Alberta. So, hello, oh Manuel. How are you today?
0: Good. Thank you. Thank you very much.
2: Very good. And uh, and well, I wonder if you could give us a bit of a background on how you've had quite a, a storied career already. As I was looking at your bio, and a lot of very diverse uh, experiences, both geographically and functionally. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background how you got to be where you are today at Lacombe and what your role
0: at Lacombe is. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm I originally from Spain. and I got my degree in veterinary science. That That's what I wanted to do since I can't remember. I worked as a veterinarian for a while, but not in Spain. Actually, my first job was in, in Finland. And then from there, I came back <clears throat> to Spain to, to do what they call a European PhD. So I spent some time in Italy, in Ireland, Of course, in several universities in Spain. Uh, Once I graduated from there, I I worked for for a company developing meat quality labels because during that PhD, I passed from from the genetics and animal production world to more carcass and meat quality. Uh, And during that time, I also applied for some postdoctoral positions and I came to Canada in 2009. It was supposed to be just for a year, uh, then it became two. Then there was a permanent position here in Lacombe uh, as a Livestock Phenomics Scientist. It was a new position that they were creating in this Livestock Phenomics field that uh, was starting at the, at the time I applied. I got the position at that that was uh, more than 10 years ago. Uh, so here we are now.
2: Great. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's quite a path, career path, uh, Manuel. And before we go any further, um, I think some of us get a little confused with the, the omics, right? And because there's a number of new terminologies being used, can you help us to understand
0: what is meant by the term phenomics? Yeah, is the is the study of the phenotypes at large scale. So when genomics started developing, and we passed from being able to, to look at the DNA to genotype uh, maybe 10, 20 animals to be able to do thousands or tens of thousands because prices went down, the the gap uh, in in the field became the phenotypes. It was great that you had genotypes from 2,000 animals, but you didn't have detailed phenotypes, high quality phenotypes from those animals. You could do nothing with the the genome, right? So people started working on on that area on how can we get large amounts of high quality phenotypes. Uh, Now, phenotypes, are defined as anything that we can measure in a living organism, pretty much. So it could be height, it could be color, it could be weight, it could be a uh, cell structure, you have massive fiber types. Right? Uh, so one of the first thing that we have to do is define which phenotype we want to focus on, then how are we going to measure them, how we're we going to collect them, store, combine with, ge- with genomics. So that that's, the in a nutshell, the definition of Phenomics. Phenomics. Thanks.
2: Thanks very much. Uh, I'm still learning lots of my, my my personal dictionary has had to be expanded just about every year. I think that I've been working in science. So thanks. Thanks for that, uh, Manuel. So today we're going to talk about pork bellies, and we're going to cover the topic fairly broadly, and then get more specific. But to start out, Manuel, can you help us to understand all of a well, Maybe not all of a sudden. But in recent time, the, the belly of the pig has become much, much more important. How has that come to
0: be? How has that happened? Well, I, I had never got an explanation specifically from anybody in the industry where they have followed through different trends. But there are a couple of main points that, in my opinion, have changed the value of the pork bellies. One of them has to do with uh, with Uh, demand for the international markets. So you have uh, markets like uh, South Korea or Japan that uh, demand high-quality bellies for for the consumption, for the different ways that they consume belly over there. Uh, And they pay high prices for high-quality bellies. So that brings up the demand for the the high-quality end uh, of the product. But then we have also the, the domestic consumption, I'm talking uh, about North America, because the case of the bellies is not the same all around the world, but in North America specifically is where these prices have changed so much. And when I talk to people, I always uh, I always ask, when was the last time that you ate pork chops? When was the last time that you had bacon in, in, in some food preparation that you were having, even as a, as a second ingredient? Uh, bacon is everywhere, every day, uh, so, uh, but and then other other pork cuts are maybe not as common. So the combination of the export markets plus the uh, the the popularity of bacon, I think, have have helped increase the price of the pork bellies.
2: Right. Yeah, it's a fascinating story, and uh, and you're right about bacon uh, for in more more recent times. Bacon is being added to so many different dishes in order to uh, to bring that wonderful flavor. Uh, I know personally, when we do something as simple as hamburgers at home and we grill them, um, I have to throw a couple of strips of bacon onto the grill to put on my hamburger. I, I never used to do that, but I I hate having a hamburger now without a, a slice of bacon on there. So, yeah, your point is that uh, your point is well taken. So let's move on then, Manuel, and let's talk about um, belly quality and what
0: what, it, what is meant by quality in the belly and how do we measure it? The, the belly is, is, a, is a complex cut because it's a combination of of different layers of fat with different muscles. It's not like the pork loin that is a single muscle. So, so that uh, creates quite a bit of complexity. Now, when we talk about quality, uh, there is some basic traits like length, width, uh, thickness, all that is, is necessary, but it can be modified sometimes by trimming the, the belly by doing different things. But the main quality attribute of pork bellies that is more difficult to, uh, to improve or, or even to measure sometimes is belly firmness. Uh, and that's a multifactorial trait, and we can talk about that a bit more. But when you when you are presented with a belly, Sometimes you have a belly that you can fold. Sometimes you have a belly you can even roll on itself. And sometimes you have base that are very stiff. So, so that's belly firmness. And it, it has a few traits there. It's not only totally that firmness, it's also the oiliness. It's also going to be the finger depression. There are different things that have been done subjectively to evaluate how firm that belly is. And sometimes people ask, well, why is that important? and There are a couple of reasons for that. One is you are going to consume it uh, without processing as bacon. You are going to consume it just cutting slices or doing different preparations like they do in Asia. Uh, You want that belly to be quite firm, actually, uh, so you can cut it and and prepare it in those traditional ways. If if the belly is very soft and very oily, you won't be able to do that. Uh, The different layers of muscle and fat may start separating. uh, so, So that's an issue. But if you want to process it as bacon, it's also quite important because those very soft bellies, very oily bellies, uh, you won't be able to process as bacon. They won't hold the brine properly uh, when you have them in the in equipment the, for, for smoking. Uh, they will create some issues. So uh, firmness is, is uh, the main quality attribute that maybe is challenging to classify for and to improve in pork bellies today. I think I could
2: ask this question from two perspectives. One would be from the perspective of the uh, of the packing plant or uh, somebody involved in further processing, or I could ask the question from the standpoint of a scientist. And I'm going to ask you to answer the question from both perspectives, if you don't mind, Manuel. And that is, how do you measure firmness? How do you quant- How do you put a number to firmness, both in in the, the, the bacon plant, we'll call
0: it, or in, uh, in your lab at Lacombe? Well, and um, that is something that I have been working on for the last 10 years because I will give you a bit of background. I was working on a project where we had different breeds, and different diets, and different ages, and weights, and gender. We were trying to, to create differentiated pork by combining multiple factors. And within that project, we have a sub project. We had a sub project where we were looking at at the pork belly, just as a secondary primal, because the, the loin was the, was the standard cut to do quality. And as we were doing that, uh, we started asking the question, how we, do we look at quality in the belly? And in the industry, they are doing it uh, subjectively. So there isn't a standard way of looking at uh, belly firmness or even belly quality. So Usually the practice is you have somebody that is trained or semi-trained, and they touch the belly, they bend it, they fold it, they touch it with the fingers, they try to compress it a little bit. So they do a a few subjective evaluations and if they are well-trained then they can separate the fair ones, especially the extremes. So that's how they do it, but there isn't a a, a specific value there. Then scientists uh, had a different method that was called the bar bend. So you had a uh, a rod, usually a metal rod or PVC rod, different diameters people have used in the past. Uh, and then you would leave the belly there for about two minutes and then the belly would fold. And then after those two minutes, you will measure the angles or the distances uh, between the ends. So I had a PhD student and he was doing that in that project and it kept bothering me. The subjective evaluation, what we ended up was developing a five-point scale for ourselves based on the industry uh, practices. But with the bar bend, it bothered me because, I mean, I used to love physics in high school, and I was thinking about different things. I was thinking, well, depending on how long or how short you cut that belly, that's going to affect the, how much it bends. So it may be as firm, but you cut a chunk less, and then it will fall differently. Uh, uh, also the, the diameter of the rod, uh, the temperature in the room. So 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 many things could impact uh, the the final value in that bar bend. But also it bothered me that it wasn't something that we could do in the plant. If uh, Talking about phenomics, that's okay. You have a project with 20 animals, but when you want to have 500, 1,000, 3,000, uh, poor belly is evaluated as a problem. And the industry will never be able to do that real time at line speed. So so from there we started thinking on more ideas but the traditional ways of uh, looking at belly firmness have been one the subjective evaluation in industry or two the bar bend method in in the lab setting
2: right okay
0: do you see any
2: uh, as you've looked at this and and I've wondered the, the same questions that that you've had um as I was doing work in a in a, a packing plant and and measuring uh, belly firmness and and it just struck me, you know, like you said, temperature could have an impact because it affects the the, the softness or the firmness of the fat, for example, and the muscle um, and the length. And your point, if you've got more length, then you've got more weight there that can cause the bend to, to be greater. So have you got any more objective methods that you're working on or evaluating or are prepared to talk about yet, or
0: maybe they're still not quite ready to go public with yet? No, for sure we can talk, and, and all of them have been published, and we have some investor disclosures even. So, uh, before I, I tell you even about the the other ones, uh, I could mention also some people look at the iodine value, uh, iodine value in the carcass or in the subcutaneous fat, because uh, belly fairness is multifactorial, so it's going to it's going to depend on on the thickness of the belly. It's going to depend, uh, and, and that's something that we started. Studying a lot in that project I told you three years ago, we tried to break down all these different parameters. Uh, Also, the the lean-to-fat ratio. So you look at how much fat pork bellies used to have 60 years ago, used to be 60-70% fat and 30-40% lean. With the selection for for lean carcasses, we ended up in the other side. We had 30% fat sometimes. And when you have less fat, the bellies are going to be less firm. Uh, And then you also have the firmness of that lean, of that muscle you have any PSE issue, you have anything where the, the firmness of the lean uh, gets compromised, then the firmness of the whole belly will as well. And then, of course, the, the the fat composition. So many people look at the iodine value thinking that that would be the magic bullet, but really, when you look at the rest of the traits, and we did some studies and we compared to other authors, the iodine value can be around 30, 40% of the variation in belly firmness. Uh, uh, once you standardize everything, it becomes more important, right? You standardize thickness and you standardize lean-to-fat ratio, but there is more variability in those traits, so it tends to be just 30%. But in terms of the iodine value, it's still important. It also matters for other things in the carcass, so we work on that right now. We have developed a, a calibration with a handheld NIR device from a Canadian company called Telespec, and. A, it's a handheld device that you can connect to a cell phone or a tablet via Bluetooth, uh, and immediately you put it on the on the belly or in any fat area in the carcass. Click a button, and your cell phone or in a tablet, you have the iodine value. The accuracy is, is is great. It's between 0.8, 0.9 for R square. What is not perfect, but is more than enough to classify in a plant setting uh, for extremes. Um, so so that's something that that we have been working on. But the main, uh, the main area where we focused was on developing that bar bend into an automated system. So the, the first thing that we did was uh, Bethany Utaro, Dr. Utaro, she, she's retiring soon, but she worked on Bellis for many years, at, first at the University of Guelph and then here at Lacombe. So she had been toying with the idea of doing something different. So instead of uh, still having the bar, she would. Set the belly on a on an inclined surface at 70 degrees and let it fall by gravity. Just one end, always the same length. I, I hadn't even seen that at the time, but I started thinking of something similar. I, I started thinking of conveyor belts. I started thinking, well, uh, what if we incline a conveyor belt? Uh, we started working at a conveyor belt at 30 degrees. First, we had a, a first prototype, and then we designed a a, a portable one. Uh, made out of metal. So we started standardizing different measures. For example, we said, well, distance, the length is an issue. So we are going to see maybe the first 24 centimeters. We started looking at different lengths. So we realized that maybe 24 centimeters of the belly were enough. So when the belly passed 24 centimeters, how we bent. Then we wanted to see, we said, two minutes is too long. Let's start bringing it down. We realized and uh, very fast that you don't need to wait at all. As soon as the belly passes, the bending that you see at uh, zero seconds, as, well, as it goes down, it will be equivalent to the bending after two minutes. So the ones that bend more at the beginning will continue bending. The ones that stay stiff will stay stiff. They may come down a little bit, but proportionally it works. So real-time measures started being a possibility. So we we kept working on that prototype so now we have we have polished this prototype we have an invention of disclosure that is public so that's a that's a metal machine that you can set at 30 15 or 0 degrees and then just by gravity the bellies as they pass and we can do this with with long bellies with short bellies we can do it with with the ribs and the skin or or without the ribs we prefer to do it with the skin on uh, and ribs on because that's the raw belly, and then you can decide processing it in different ways. So that that works quite well. Still, it's a manual method. You have somebody moving the moving the instrument. Now we have been able to to attach a, a new piece. So as the belly comes down, it moves a, a a little metal piece that will come down, and then it it indicates the degrees of bending. Uh, and then as soon as the belly passes, it leaves that metal piece out and then it will stay and it will tell you the, this one bend this many degrees compared to the previous one. And then we went one step farther. We thought, okay, how could the industry use this? And it ended up being a very simple concept. So if we know now that by gravity, they will separate very well. Just imagine how simple it would be if you have a conveyor belt that is separated a few centimeters from the next conveyor belt. So as the as the belly passes, if it's a very stiff belly, there will be no problem. But if it's a soft belly, it will fall in the gap. Now you want to go farther, You can incline this 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 uh, uh, this first conveyor, or you can incline the second. You could have multiple conveyors. So right now our system, the one that we have here for testing, we have two conveyors. One is a fifth, uh, I think it's a uh, 12 degrees. We ended up playing with different. You can play with different angles, different speeds. So it's separated from another, uh, another conveyor, and then there's a, second, a third conveyor a bit higher. So as the belly passes, the first uh, conveyor, if it's very soft, it falls into a bucket. So that's a very low quality one. If it's a an intermediate, medium quality belly, it will be picked up by the first uh, uh, receiving conveyor, let's say, right? But if it's a high quality one, it will be so stiff they will be picked up by the top. Uh, but the configurations are multiple. You could just have a, a series of conveyors separated different distances and at zero degrees, and they will be different. Belts will be falling at different gaps, or you could have a stage where you separate the very soft and then the next one the very firm. So it's it's a very we we have published the concept and the results from, from our own testing. Temperature is very important, so you have to maintain temperature. It's very interesting. The bellies are very, very cold. Separation is less uh, obvious. You start having bellies that look similar, but you you go too high, then everything starts being soft. Uh, But anyway, so that's a method for a possibility for automation in the plant. We have the one that is the manual conveyor that is great for research because it tells you the actual degrees. So you you we are using that for genetic selection, for example. And then we had the Iodine value that tells you more maybe about the diet, but it still has an influence on the on the belly fragments. right Great. Yeah. That's that's fascinating and,
2: and being able to automate that of course would be the ultimate uh, the ultimate objective, right? And and so plants could differentiate the product uh on the fly,
0: so to speak. Yeah, the idea, the idea for us also, when I started working with conveyors was, because when you go to plants, I mean, the bellies are passing through conveyors as of today. That's, that's how they move them from one place to another. And so we could do something with equipment that they already have, because we are talking right now, if you want to separate the very bad bellies, you just find a place where where two conveyors touch and you separate them, and then the very bad bellies will go down. And so it's, it's as simple. Uh, and you could do that a, a couple of times and then you have two, three, four classes uh, of quality. So it's automation, but we don't need robotics. At the beginning, we started thinking, well, we have an angle, we have a, a laser, something, but simple solutions are, are cheaper and are uh, maybe uh, more of a possibility for for the commercial plants large and small.
2: Yeah. yeah,
0: the maintenance people in packing
2: plants already have enough work to do that we don't need to give them more. Right on, very good. So I'm going to just switch gears just a little bit. So we've been talking, um, Manuel, about the evaluation of quality and what quality really means. If I was to get into the pig industry for the first time and I had unlimited resources, I start with the, the genetics of the animals I work with. I I also control how I feed those animals through to market. And then I have my own processing plant for processing the pigs and my own bacon plant for uh, taking the bellies and specializing in the production of, of bacon and other belly products. What are the What are the factors that you think are the most important that I would want to control if I wanted to achieve the highest proportion of bellies reaching the premium market. So I can control everything,
0: right? Yeah, in, in a way the answer is, is simple and complex because it's similar to anything else that we do with pigs. Uh, it's a combination of genetics and diet mainly. Uh, so right now the, the, the challenge in the, on the genetics side is that those traits that produce high quality bellies go against the selection that we have done for lean carcasses and, and low in quality in a way. Uh, so we have been selected for many years for carcasses that are very low in subcutaneous fat. Well, subcutaneous fat is the fat on the belly. It's the same tissue just from the back to the, to, uh, to the ventral area. So uh, if, we do, if we try to select for better bellies, we are going to have a, a negative correlation with the traits that we want to select for the loins. At the same time, we are also going to modify other primers. For example, the ham. Uh, In North America, we want hams that have low back fat, while in Europe, especially they're doing dry cured hams, they want to have more of that fat thickness on top. So with genetic selection, you can try to to do a little bit of change of the belly, but this is hard because as I say, uh, you are going to be impacting other primers. Something that we are working with uh, with some genetic companies is actually trying to create lines for for good bellies and good hands, uh, like more fatty animals that still maintain a certain degree of of efficiency uh, on the loin and and the whole carcass, but that can bring up some of those parameters in the in the belly uh, and usually also in the hand because it's gonna come together. So genetic selection is important. Uh, we can try to look at the fat fat to lymph ratio in many different ways. It cannot be just subcutaneous so fat, but that's, that's a possibility. Then the diet, uh, when we have seen in the past what happens with, uh, with cheap diets like the DDGS, you know, the distiller grains, uh, it's interesting because when you look at so studies that keep asking for more PUFA, you know, more polyunsaturated fat, and more omega-3 and all of this, uh, because of human health, and we could talk an hour just about that, but uh, the, the consequence is uh, soft fat, and yeah. that's an issue for processing. So, with the diet we know pigs are monogastric, so it could be relatively easy to increase the saturation of fat and make it more firm. And we have done that here, and it's it's quite easy. You can do it in a few weeks changing the diet. You can do it through the whole life of the animal. Uh, you can work on the diet in in other ways also for the fat but even with for the lean firmness so so on the life animal those are all the components that we can look at uh, once that you get to the plant is it's hard to modify uh, belly firmness if you chill the belly well then it's going to be more firm because it's cold but you know that that doesn't change the actual composition mm-hmm. uh, what you can do or what the plants do is is actual uh, the classification and this will have been working for many years because the classification is important uh, we're talking about how the soft bellies are not good for bacon or for maybe the japanese market but the soft bellies can be used for other things in italy the soft bellies are preferred for pancetta or you can have these raw belly cuts that people use and cook as a whole right, in, 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 for some of the different markets so it's not that the soft bellies are terrible it's just that the premium markets are demanding the, the the firm ones, so there's a market for everything, and if you are a smart plant manager, what you do is you uh, discriminate, you separate these uh, these different qualities, and you send them to wh- uh, whoever is paying you the most for for the differentiated product. Because if you send the soft belly to Japan, you will have a discount, but you sell it to uh, to somebody making pancetta, they may even pay you a premium. So, the plant, the plant can find different uses for the different qualities. Very good. Very good. That's interesting. I'd like to go
2: back, if you don't mind, because I'm a nutritionist and I wanted to just pursue your perspective on how if you made the comment about feeding a change in the diet uh, prior to market. So, based on your reading, based on your own experiences there at Lacombe, how long prior to marketing do we need to change the diet of the pig in order to firm up the belly
0: well the interesting thing is most of our studies went the opposite direction uh, most of our studies were how long do we need to feed the diet to increase omega-3 or to increase oh, poop. right yes yep. <laughs> but uh, but still uh, after that we did the opposite we have seen that uh, what well, we are trying, for example, to increase the omega three on on the back fat around the loin, three four weeks uh, were sufficient. Well, at the beginning I thought I was too short, but no, it's, it, we, we can see it, and I think it's because we don't have that much fat to start with. It's not it's not a big layer, so with a few weeks in terms of proportionally percentages, that may be enough. Uh, with the Belly fat is similar, but at the same time, we had to think that there are multiple fat layers, and some of them have quite a bit of thickness, so it may be different. If uh, you have been feeding the animal a very high PUFA diet for their whole life, three, four weeks may not be enough to stiffen it, but it will help. Uh, uh, I, I think if we have maintained a, what we can call a commercial diet, and we have seen that in some of our studies, we maintain the, the commercial diet and then for the last three, four weeks, we changed the diet to either make it more stiff or more uh, uh, polyunsaturated or softer. Uh, that seemed to be enough. And I think it could be even shorter, maybe two, three weeks would be enough to make a change. You want to go to extremes, you may want to do something longer. Uh, but I say that that range, three, four weeks, the, just the last month before a slaughter maybe be enough. Right, okay. Well, our time is
2: moving on, Manuel. This has been really interesting. Do you have any final uh, thoughts or uh, summary comments that you'd like to share with our listeners?
0: Well, I just want to mention that there are now, in the last few years, I have seen more uh, more groups internationally actually working on poor belly quality. Some of them are using image analysis. Some of them are using other technologies like uh, from NIR to Raman to different things. Uh, so I, I'm glad to see all these different approaches. And uh, I encourage anyone who has any idea if they want to collaborate with us, if they want to, to have uh, everything that I have mentioned today is public, uh, is Polish, uh, can be used by anyone. So there's nothing confidential here. We can send you the blueprints of the of the conveyor machines, and you you build your own. I'm taking one to Japan in three weeks and leaving it there for them to do some research. So. So, yeah, I, I, we are open to, to discuss any of these uh, findings and, and developments. Great. Well, thanks so much, Manuel. It's time
1: for our famous three.
2: We'll finish up, as we always do, with the three questions that we ask of all of our guests. And the, the first question, Manuel, is Is there a book or, re, or resource that you have found particularly useful uh, in your field in, uh, in meat science?
0: Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, working on meat science, the 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 main book, the main reference when you start looking into into any attributes is is Laurie's Meat Science. That's that's the book. Uh, it has multiple chapters. Chapters they go from the life animal to sensory evaluation to consumers. So so you have everything there. There are some specialized specialized books, or maybe some new versions of something similar, but yeah, I would recommend that to anybody getting into the field. Great. And
2: now, then, um, similar question, but now outside of me. Science, the book that you have read, it might be for personal development, it might just be for for uh, entertainment or relaxation. Uh, has there uh, is there a book that you would like to
0: recommend to our listeners? I I love reading uh, historical novels where you follow somebody uh, through their whole life, maybe a thousand, two thousand years ago in different locations. Uh, and that has helped me also in my, just look at my career path, It's being a bit like those guys that started one place and they, they ended up in a different place that they never expected. So the, my man's favorite book, she recommended it to me when I was a teenager and I still love it. is uh, It's called The Egyptian by Mika Baltari, a Finnish author, or Sinue, the, the Egyptian. Um, it's the first book maybe I've read uh, of that type. Uh, and it's great. And it shows you that, Life changes for good or for bad, right? So
2: just keep going and and try. Yes, uh, some authors just have that skill, don't they? And my final my final question then for you is: In your experience, um, Manuel, what would uh, what would you say distinguishes or separates the the most successful people in your field from the rest of the field? What what is it that makes some people more successful
0: than others? In my opinion, my experience, the people I have met and and the experiences I had is uh, people who keep learning, who don't settle and just do things because that's the way that it used to be done. That's the way that they first learned. They keep learning. That doesn't mean reinventing the wheel all the time. Sometimes you keep learning and you realize that what you're doing is great. You keep going. Uh, But you keep learning. You keep talking to others. You are open-minded. And then you find... Sometimes that little change that otherwise you wouldn't, wouldn't have noticed, and then you improve. And that, and that means you improve your career or you improve your company or you improve your product. So keep learning uh, and keep an open mind. Uh, we Nobody knows everything, and that's great. Very good. Well, thank you very much. We've
2: been uh, speaking with Dr. Manuel Juarez, who's with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada in Lacombe, Alberta we've been talking about pork bellies and how you measure quality and how you achieve quality and what do we call quality when it comes to pork bellies. And obviously not a simple topic because it depends on where you are in the world. What is called uh, high quality, but man, well, this has been just very, very interesting. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to share some of your thoughts with our listeners in swine at Canada today. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you.